and welcome to the Tebby podcast from The Evidence-Based Investor. I'm Robin Powell and this podcast is brought to you by Regis Media, a niche provider of educational and marketing content for financial advice firms. Yes, this is the first Tebby podcast for quite a while. We've had to put it on hold during the coronavirus pandemic. But we're back and here to stay. In this episode, we're focusing on the man they used to call Britain's Warren Buffett, Neil Woodford. It's been more than a year and a half since the Woodford Equity Income Fund, run by the former star fund manager, was suspended. Since then, investors in the fund, now called the LF Equity Income Fund, have endured a frustrating time, with little apparent progress being made towards securing compensation for those affected. And we're still awaiting the findings of an inquiry into the affair from the UK regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority. I've been speaking to the journalist David Ricketts, who's written a new book on Woodford's spectacular fall from grace. It's called When the Fund Stops. In this interview, we explore some key questions. Could Woodford's demise have been foreseen? Where exactly did he go wrong? Why wasn't more done to protect investors? Who's to blame? And will we see more Woodford-style scandals in the future? David, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Robin. Glad to be here. And I've really enjoyed uh, reading your book uh, over the Christmas period. I I should have been relaxing and enjoying myself, but I, I couldn't put it down. I, I, I Seriously, I, I really enjoyed it. That's good. Well, thank you very much for, for the uh, comments. So tell me, how did this all start? I mean, I know you, you were approached by the publisher about writing uh, this this book, but uh, as a journalist, what are your memories uh, of, of, I suppose, beginning of June 2019, when this whole story broke? Yeah, well, this, I would say, has to be certainly one of the most exciting and also probably the most shocking stories I've worked on as a, as a financial journalist. So I've, I've been a financial journalist now for um, well over 10 years. So I actually started my career uh, just before the onset of the financial crisis uh, in 2008. And um, just when I thought things were getting interesting back then, um, little did I know that, you know, things like the uh, the Brexit uh, vote and also the onset of COVID would, would cause uh, a lot of excitement. But, you know, Woodford was one of those um, stories that, that really kind of got the interest of financial journalists uh, right from the outset. I think if we, we can go back right to the departure of Neil Woodford from, from Investigo in 2014 itself, which I think was, you know, at the time, it was, it was very big news. I remember speaking to um, financial advisors at the time who said to me, you know, this is the biggest story mm-hmm. of the decade. So even his announcement uh, leaving Invesco after more than 20 years um, as a fund manager there was was big news. And, you know, Neil Woodford has been one of those those kind of characters that all financial journalists that, that kind of cover the, the fund management sector have followed over the years. Um, so I think, you know, the, the initial excitement about him leaving Invesco and setting up his own firm, you know, that, that certainly got a lot of interest. Um, and, you know, the coverage around that was was, was immense. Um, but I think actually you're right, the, the, the June 2019, you know, the, the announcement that Woodford's one-time flagship fund, which, you know, at its, at its peak managed more than 10 billion uh, of assets, the fact that that was being um, suspended 
you know, the, the assets had, had dwindled down to um, around about three billion, um, and the decision was made to suspend that fund. I mean, it was it was a big shock to everyone who followed Woodford, um, not least obviously the investors who who were who were locked in that fund afterwards. So, you know. Th- the memory, overriding memory, really at that time was, you know, there was, there was immense shock and surprise that this decision had been taken, um, and really it was it was a case of, you know, how is how is Neil Woodford going to pull back from this? Because you know, we had been covering this story you know, in the run up to June 2019, we we'd seen the huge outflows from that fund um, over several months. Um, you know, that that peak in in 2017, I mentioned where he was managing 10 10 billion. Shortly after that period, that's when the outflows started to, to occur, and you know, I think what was the writing on the wall? I don't know, but I think actually you could sense that the Woodford was starting to struggle after that point. There were a succession mm. of, of profit warnings that were issued by some of the big companies he invested in. Um, that obviously spooked investors. They started to pull money out of the fund, and it was really kind of a, a battle for Woodford to contain those outflows um, and you know raise enough money to, to pay investors back. So the overriding um, kind of memory of that of that period was yeah a lot of, a lot of shock and surprise. Um, mm. Really kind of thinking how is how is Woodford going to pull back for, from this? Now I'm guessing the vast majority of people listening to this podcast will know of Neil Woodford mm. and. and- know about him um we we do have a lot of listeners overseas so maybe you could just paint a little picture if you would uh david of neil woodford and you know let's face it he he was spectacularly successful yeah. in vesco perpetual yeah that's right i think actually one of, one of the things i was quite keen to do in, in the book was really yeah pa- paint a full picture of the you know, the rise of Neil Woodford as much as, as his downfall, because I think one of the things I, I try and get across in the book is is you know, one of the reasons this this downfall was so shocking, as you rightly say, is because he was a very well known fund manager uh, in the UK. I mean, he, he kind of had this this rock rock star status, if you like. And, and Invesco, you're right. I think he 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 really did sort of have a reputation of being un, unfallible, if you like. I think the the period where he he made a, a real name for himself was uh, in the run up to the um, the, the tech bubble bursting. Um, he was one of the few fund managers that refused to pile into tech stocks when all those around him were doing so. He refused to follow the herd. Um, he was somebody who invested in traditional stock blue chip companies, um, particularly tobacco stocks. And actually, tobacco stock was one of the the big winners for Woodford in the early part of his career. And he. He, he remained tr- true and loyal to those stocks uh, during the, the late 90s while everyone was kind of getting very excited about the, the tech the tech boom. And um, even the, you know a lot of financial advisors and, and people that were supporters of Woodford started to question him at that point, saying, why isn't, why isn't this guy following the herd and, and getting into this, this kind of booming sector? Um, mm. And as we all know, I mean, when the, when the tech bubble burst, you know, he was, he was vindicated, actually. You know, that's when he made you know, a lot of money for his investors and he went on to make a lot of personal wealth as well. And I think um, at Invesco, he really sort of was considered the star fund manager. Um, there were a lot of changes going on internally with um, when, when Invesco um, acquired Perpetual, which was, um, you know, it was based in Henley. You know, he was seen as somebody who was you know, calling the shots in some ways. He was a star fund manager. He refused to, to move to to London and kind of get involved in the, the kind of culture, if you like, the fund manager culture of, of the other uh, kind of city mm. big firms. And uh, yeah, I think you know, Invesco is where he really made a name for himself. And you know, by the time he left, he was managing north of 30 
billion pounds sterling in, in two of his big funds, the, the high income fund and the income fund. Um, and it wasn't just the, the tech the tech bubble where he, he made a name for himself. He was also one of the few fund managers that didn't hold any banks um, in the run up to the financial crisis. So again, you know, he proved that he was very successful at navigating some of these very choppy and very volatile times. Um, and it was thanks to that that he gained such a reputation um, and he became the sort of darling, the poster boy, if you like, of the UK fund management industry. And, you know, right, rightly so. I think he, he did very well at Invesco and he, he generated returns for his investors. I mean, there's this often uh, sort of quoted stat that somebody who invested, I think, a thousand pounds with him at the start of his career in 1988 would have been sitting on more than 25,000 pounds, you know, 25 years later. So any investor would be very happy with those returns. And I think, you know, even some of the, some of the, the, the media coverage around Woodford at the time that he left Invesco, I think there was a, a BBC uh, online article that, that called him the, the man who can't stop making money. So he really was seen as somebody who was head and shoulders above the rest. He had this rock star status. Um, and again, that, that, that is what made the, the, the downfall all the more surprising. Mm. As you say, you know, turning a, a thousand pounds in, in, into twenty five thousand pounds, I mean, that that is not to be sniffed at. That mm. kind of achievement. I mean, I, I would qualify that uh, by by saying, you know, how many people actually spotted this guy before he started outperforming? Mm. That's the first thing. How many stuck with him? While, as you say, everyone was saying, "Look, Woodford, why, why aren't you getting into, you know, dot coms in 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 the late nineteen nineties? How many people stood with him all the way through that? How many people stood with him, you know, up to the financial crisis? Um, you know, when, as you say, he was avoiding uh, banks and so on. Um, you know, it, it must be a very very small proportion of the total number of people who've ever invested in Woodford who actually benefited to anything like that extent. But but I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. It, it's a huge achievement, isn't it? It is. I think it's very, it's very difficult to qualify. You know, we, we don't have the numbers to suggest, you know, people that, that did invest with him early on in his career would have benefited from that, you know, had they stayed with him. I think that's that's the thing about investment. It's a very long-term game. And um, your know, hindsight is also a wonderful thing. I mean, we can go back and look at, you know, stats and, and certainly portray fund managers in certain ways based on, on, on statistics. But what I, what I think is clear is that a lot of people did follow Neil Woodford from Invesco to his new venture. So that was that was very evident. Mm. I think that the, by the time he announced that he was leaving Invesco, uh, Mark Barnett, who was who was um, his kind of protege, if you like, at, at Invesco, um, was certainly struggling to contain the outflows from those, those two funds, the high income and the income fund. And Invesco lost a huge amount of money from those funds when Woodford announced that he was leaving. And a lot of that fund money went, you know, with Woodford, to his to his new venture, I think again, mm. you know, one, one of the the surprising elements in all in all of this, you know, the downfall was that within the first you know few months of setting up his new business, you know, he was managing you know five five billion pounds uh, of investor mm. assets. And I think the the equity income fund when it was launched, it was you know it, it broke records in terms of the money it, it gathered from investors during during the launch period. So. You're right. It, we we can't tell whether the investors, you know, whether those investors did benefit from that entire sort of 25 year um, success. But it's very clear, I think, to say that you know, he did have a, a loyal fan base that that walked out of the door with him from Invesco 
to to his new venture and hopefully they were obviously hoping that he could replicate the success that he'd uh, achieved at, at Invesco. Now the question of course that, that everyone wants an answer to and, and we, we still have properly had it is is how did a guy go, go from being a hero to zero you know how, how was he such a star at, at Invesco Perpetual and then for things to, to go so badly wrong uh, in in the next venture and I think one of the most interesting things to come out of your book uh, is that you actually say well in a sense you know, there there were the kind of you know, seeds, if you like, uh, of of his eventual collapse being sown, even while he was still at Invesco Perpetual. You know, he started off, as you say, very much as a kind of investor in in big, safe, traditional stocks. But but actually, in the latter years, from sort of um, two thousand and eight nine onwards he he was actually investing more and more in early stage companies wasn't he yeah that's right i think that the latter years that he was in vesco he started to to venture into some of these um, less liquid companies the so smaller companies um, that, that aren't listed necessarily on, on the stock exchange so you know, he, he spotted an opportunity here which he thought was you know a great investment potentially these companies would offer higher potential for, for growth and it wasn't it wasn't as though he was piling into these companies at a, 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 a huge rate I think actually a lot of the financial advisors that I spoke to for the books mentioned to me that they knew that he was starting to stray into some of these areas but it wasn't to the extent that it got to um at his new venture and we, we can obviously talk a bit a bit more about that but, but he, mm. did, he did start to move into some of these I suppose newer territory if you like and I think actually what, what we started to see towards the end of his career at Invesco was that that there was a change in management as well uh, at the time. So mm. there was a new chief investment officer who was brought in. Um, I suppose the culture had changed somewhat uh, at the firm as well. So that they began to ask a few more questions about the investment process that, that Woodford was taking. Um, there was an investment committee that was set up to to oversee or, or maybe keep a check, if you like, on some of the investments um, that were being made uh, by, by Woodford. And that was directly reporting to to the new uh, chief investment officer um, and I think there, there's a sense from, from speaking to people that, that, that worked with Woodford and Invesco during his latter years there was a sense that things had started to change and I think you know he became aware that that he was being asked more questions about his investment process perhaps you know he, he wasn't used to, to that kind of level of scrutiny he was kind of used to doing the thing he'd always done at Invesco and then kind of being given sort of free reign to invest in companies you know, that he, he thought would deliver the, the best returns. But I think, you know, the, the culture had started to change um, at Invesco. He's being asked uh, a lot more questions about some of the investments he was making. And I think he, he started to feel that maybe he would be better off outside of a, a big organisation where there was a kind of overbearing um, sense of, you know, compliance obviously a very important function as a fund manager, but there were a lot of kind of hoops to jump through and a lot of questions that were being asked. So, you know, I think that the sense was that maybe if he struck out on his own, he could make a lot more of these decisions himself um, and and justify these decisions if it was just to him and his immediate compliance team of you know a few a few people as opposed to a, a team of I don't know how many how many people working in Fesco. Um, but but again, another important point to, to mention at this stage is that you know that there was a an FCA fine um, that was handed down to Invesco um, and it was announced just I think a month before Woodford was due to launch his new fund and uh, you know what was interesting was that the FCA 
you know, found that about 15 Invesco funds, um, including Woodford's high income and income funds, you know, exposed investors to higher levels of risk than perhaps they were led to expect. So you know, there's nothing wrong with investing in companies that aren't listed. I mean, there, there are lots of fund managers who do that. Um, and, and we can talk a bit more about the, the rules that were governing you know, Woodford mm. and uh, you know, European rules called, called USITs, which do permit you know, funds to invest in, in unquoted companies. But there is a, a threshold that needs to be kind of met, if you like. You can't exceed the 10% of the fund's assets, for example. Um, so there's nothing wrong with, with investing in, in, in unlisted companies per se. But I think the issue that, that became um, more apparent as, as, as Woodford moved into his new venture was, were investors fully aware of the, of the extent to which he was doing this? And I think one of the reasons that Woodford perhaps did, did come unstuck towards the end. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating when you look into the outflows and the, um, the kind of proportion that the, um, the unlisted companies made up of his fund towards the end. I mean, there were, yeah, there was, there was a huge kind of um, exposure to unlisted companies um, mm. towards the end as he was having to sell down some of the, the, the holdings in more liquid companies to meet those redemption requests. So, um, so you're right. I, th I think if he had started straight into these companies, the unlisted companies, during the end of his, his career in Invesco, um, at that stage, it wasn't a concern. I think actually, even with the launch of Equity Income Fund in 2014, we started to see uh, maybe a continuation of this trend. There, there were a few unlisted companies that were announced in the in the portfolio when the fund was was launched, but nothing to the extent to which you know it, it ended up. You know four or five years later, I think you know, it, it probably did take a few people by surprise, the fact they had strayed into these companies mm -hmm. um, to, to such an extent towards the end. There's some interesting, colourful, uh, personal information as mm -hmm. well that you, you include uh, about, you know, the, those latter years at, at, at Invesco. Um, he, he lost his temper um, fairly often. He, he, he insisted on having his own office, uh, you know, separate from 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 the rest of the of the team, which had always been the way that they that they'd done things there. You also describe at one stage how he and a few friends would would go to the gym, the company gym, at lunchtime, and 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 really kind of get pumped up. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, so so again, this this is what makes the the story really interesting. Is when you when you start delving into you know, the the characters and, and the way that the people behave, and I think. You know, one of the great things about writing a book is that you can really get into the the fine, the fine detail, if you like. And, and speaking mm -hmm. to former colleagues, you're absolutely right. So, so I think one of the things, you know, going back to this this kind of star status that Neil Woodford had in Invesco, I suppose you, know, you could call it ego uh, as well. I think you know he he'd obviously got to a stage where he was clearly Invesco's star performer um and he kind of had this as you say the remote the kind of cut off office office from the rest of the team where he was allowed to kind of hold conference calls and, and get away from the distractions of the office um and yeah i mean i spoke to, to a few people that said that he would occasionally lose his temper not not necessarily with with other people at invesco or, or mm. colleagues but having a glass office of course means that that all of this emotion is is on public display so people would often see him yeah lose his temper or, or, or get frustrated at various things um in, in his glass office um and you're right mm. there was woodford is a, is a fitness fanatic he's, he's a he's a rugby fan he played rugby at a very young age um he continued following rugby all the way through his through his career and yeah he, he would often 
go to the in-house gym Investco Perpetual, which again, I was told by former colleagues, he was one of the people that, that insisted on, on an in-house gym um, mm. at their, their Henley office. Um, and yeah, it was kind of a way for him to, to let off steam and um, and yeah, for, for, for his colleagues to, to join him. And I think there, were, there was a, a quote in the book talking about him being seen in the gym and a couple of occasions shouting at the wall if he's lost, you know, lost his temper or frustrated at something. So it was an outlet, I guess, for him uh, to, to let off some of that frustration. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose the characters, the, the, the ego, this kind of sense of Neil Woodford being a, um, a kind of key personality at, at Invesco Perpetual was certainly something that came out of the conversations I had with, with some of his former colleagues. Now, you know, a lot of former colleagues as well talked to me about how Neil, Neil Woodford was also, you know, a great um, mentor to them and, and a great sort of person to, to speak to and learn and, and, and get knowledge of. So, you know, that's one thing mm. I, you know, I wouldn't want to lose sight of. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a mixed a mixed response I got from people working there. So people that said they they learned a lot from him and, and thought he was a great sort of person to look up to, and other people said that you know you had to be you have to choose the right moment to go and approach him if you had a, a query about something because you didn't want didn't want to get on the wrong side of him necessarily. And you know again that comes that comes through as well with you know some of the meetings he had with with chief executives of companies he invested in. He would often summon them to the Henley office um, to hold meetings with them because he had that he had that status he could do that he was such a powerful investor um, you know, normally you'd expect for managers to go to to the offices or head offices of the companies they invest in but but it kind of worked the other way around as you were saying uh, you know he, he had this aura didn't he when he set up his 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 own firm in 2014 had this aura of of a man who kind of couldn't couldn't stop making money. I think was a was a was a phrase that the BBC what uh, once used. And a lot's been made of um, Hargreaves Lansdowne role in all this. And and I always think, well, you know, Hargreaves certainly weren't the only people who were saying this guy was the best thing since sliced bread. You know, there are lots of guilty partners players here. Um, but but I think you describe Hargreaves as the loudest cheerleader. How significant do you think were Hargreaves Lansdowne in creating a, a Woodford myth, if you like? Yeah, I think I think you're right. There, there was undeniably they helped to create a buzz around uh, Neil Woodford, particularly around the time that his his fund was launched. I mean, if we go back to 2014 when he announced that he was leaving um, Investco Petrol, I mean. Almost sort of immediately, there was this announcement that uh, he would be setting up his own his own fund management business, um, and soon after, be launching the Equity Income Fund. And you know, Hargreaves Lansdowne had this this agreement with with Woodford that they had this special fee structure in place that would mean that would be the cheapest venue for people to to invest in in Woodford's new fund. And if you if you go back and look at some of the um, promotion material around Woodford's fund launch. It gave the impression that Woodford was, was certainly, as you say, the, the best things in Slice Bread. I mean, there was a lot of promotion around Woodford, the, the fund manager uh, and, and the brand of Woodford. Um, and we had, you know, the likes of Peter Hargreaves, the founder, one of the co-founders of, of Hargreaves Lansdowne, um, even saying, you know, he would invest his own his own personal wealth in, in, um, in Woodford's fund. And also, the likes of you know, Mark Dampier, who was head of um, investment research, saying that him and his wife would also be investing money in the fund. So you know, th- there was a lot of excitement. And you're right, Hargreaves Lansdowne certainly did throw everything they had at, at this launch. And, and from speaking to you know, former colleagues or former people that worked at, at Hargreaves Lansdowne, you know, there was 
undeniably a buzz around Woodford when this fund was launched. And what they said to me was that this was one of the biggest promotional um, sort of drives of your marketing campaigns they'd ever seen. Um, I think they, they went back and I think they cited to me the the, the listing of Royal Mail um, several years earlier, which actually, again, that was a big promotion for Hargreaves Lansdowne, but, but the, the Woodford campaign, if you like, blew that, that out of the water and it was, um, you know, they threw absolutely everything at it. Um, so you're right, that, that there was actually a lot of buzz and excitement created by Hargreaves. Um, the fact that it was was also included on their on their buy list, so the wealth um, 150, as it was known at the time, um, also helped generate a lot of interest. And you know, from, from speaking to to investors who went into Woodford's fund, I mean, again, you can, you can probably say with, with some certainty that they were drawn in as well by some of the the marketing around Woodford and the fact that it was on this this buy list. It helped to generate interest as well. I mean, Wealth 150 list is Hargreaves' um, list of preferred funds, if you like, You're backed by what they say is a rigorous internal research process. So if you're an investor, a DIY investor on Hargreaves' Lansdowne, you know, trying to whittle down you know, thousands of funds to a select few, you, know, you rely on, on these buy lists to, to a certain extent. So having that fund on the list certainly generated a lot of buzz as well. So, as you say, um, many um, uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne insiders um, you know, put, put their money where their mouths were and invested uh, with Neil Woodford. And, and clearly, you know, they, they will have you know, not done very well as a result of that. But we, we're talking here about, you know, I, you mentioned Peter Hargreaves there, you know, net worth uh, 3.7 billion US dollars. He's seven times richer than the Queen. Um, Mark Dampier and his wife, um, the Daily Mail reported uh, shortly after um, this whole thing blew up in June, had, had, had just before uh, it all happened, sold many million pounds worth of, of, of Hargreaves Lansdowne shares, which had no doubt benefited hugely from uh, all the interests surrounding uh, surrounding Woodford. He has been a massive money spinner for, for Hargreaves Lansdowne. And yet, as a former staffer at Hargreaves says in your book, there, there was there was a lack of what he called belt or she called belt and braces analysis of Woodford by Hargreaves Lansdowne. This insider d- describes how, you know, Woodford wouldn't visit very often, but when he did, he didn't say very much and there, weren't, there wasn't any kind of detailed questioning of him, if you like. That, that's, well, that's shocking, isn't it, David? Yeah, I think there was there was an expectation, I think, um, from a lot of people that worked at Hargreaves Lansdowne that, that, that Woodford would simply continue his, his run of success for, from Invesco and, and certainly just, just move move that track record across um yeah as you say from speaking to to form people that that work there um i think they were taken a bit by surprise that there wasn't this kind of initial um scrutiny that was that was placed on on the fund i think actually you know it goes back to the the fact that perhaps the focus was too much on woodford the fund manager and not woodford Mm. and his new fund the woodford equity income fund so you're absolutely right. I think there was an expectation that, that perhaps there would have been a more rigorous questioning around the fund launch and perhaps what it would include. You know, would he deviate from from the investment approach that he, he had at Invesco Perpetual? But, um, you know, 
I suppose playing devil's advocate here, one could argue that maybe Hargreaves Lansdowne, thought, you know, he had a proven track record over over twenty years. But he wasn't a young upstart. He was certainly somebody with a with a proven track record. Um, and I think the expectation was that perhaps that he would just carry on and deliver as he had done. Um, but I think you're right. I think from, from speaking to other people at Hargreaves, you know, the fund you know, wasn't given the, the the same level of scrutiny as as perhaps some other new fund launches would have been. Um, and I suppose it you know it may have been just a case of going through the motions and going through a, a checklist of you know it, it, what's the investment process like? Has it deviated from what mm. Invesco? Um, and it may it, perhaps it would have been a chance to ask a few tough questions and probe. Know, Woodford about uh, the, the the approach he was looking to take, um, but what I think what I think did become clear, I suppose that you know we're talking here about the initial fund launch, but what what did become clear, um, you know, in the research for the book and certainly through some of the um, material that was shared with the the Treasury Committee that, that looked into uh, all this, was that you know Hargreaves did start to raise questions and ask questions about you know some of the the liquid holdings, um, you know, certainly as the fund was approaching its suspension, um, and in particular the breach of that that ten percent threshold that I mentioned of you know that's part of the EU rules. So, I, th I think questions were 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 being asked um, by Hargreaves, but but I think the confusion is you know why were those questions not asked earlier on, and also mm -hmm. while those questions were being asked, why was that fund still on the wealth 150 list or the wealth 50 list as it was later called. So, um, you know, I think Hargreaves comes, comes in for a lot of flack over, over the support they gave Woodford, you know, the lack of you know, detailed questions that were being asked, but also, you know, the fact that this fund remained so prominent on this buy list for such a long time, even though performance was tanking, concerns were being raised about the, the allocation to some of these unquoted companies. So I think, that that's where I think a lot of the questions um, do do lie with Hargreaves. It was championing this fund at a time when people were starting to, to raise some concerns about it. And what about link fund solutions? Uh, without getting too technical, link fund solutions are uh, a, a, a what's called an ACD, an authorised corporate director of the fund. And, and as such, they had a fiduciary responsibility to people who invested in the fund, A, to, to make sure that, that their money was being sensibly invested. And, and secondly, crucially, that, you know, if they wanted to get their money out at any time, they, they could. And, and you know, it, it, it does appear very plain that they failed investors on, on both of those counts. Yeah, I think actually this is another interesting element in the whole story is, you know, Link, as you already say, the authorised corporate director, it sounds like a very unglamorous and unsexy sort of role, but it's but it's a crucial role uh, in the world of fund management. So you're absolutely right. So they 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 have responsibility to make sure that the fund manager is is fulfilling their their, their duties um, and yeah, treating investors fairly. And, and that actually the fund is 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 um, it's kind of sticking to, to the rules. Um, what, what what is interesting actually is that you know it was at its link um, who is answerable to the FCA, not Neil Woodford, but the fund manager. So, mm -hmm. and another important element I think, which which I try to get across in the book as well, is that you know the, the, one of the reasons that the fund suspension I think came as a as a surprise, um, and, and we talk about this, or I talk about this in in, in right at the start of the book. Um, is that Lincoln and Woodford obviously having conversations about you know, the, the, the route the fund was taking. Um, they could obviously see that the outflows were 
continuing at such a, an alarming rate. Um, they were talking about the, the kind of liquidity profile of the fund. One of the one of the key triggers for that suspension uh, back in June um, 2019 was the fact that one of Woodford's largest clients, so Kent County Council Pension Fund, they took the decision that they wanted their their entire investment back, which I think at the time was roughly 240 250 million pounds. So that that was a huge sum of money to to pull from a fund in one go. Um, so. In the run-up to the fund being suspended uh, at the start of June, conversations were taking place between Link and Woodford about you know, what would happen to the fund if if Kent County Council were to redeem that holding. Um, you know, could, could could the fund continue in the way it is? Um, you know, what would the liquidity profile look like? Could the fund offer Kent a uh, a managed redemption? So you know, rather than pulling the fund the whole holding in one go. Could it be staged over several months to, to enable the fund to continue operating um, and it wouldn't be such a blow to, to, to other investors? So a lot of conversations were taking place uh, behind the scenes. And actually, from, from speaking to people that worked with Woodford um, at the time, um, that decision was, was a surprise to them to suspend the fund. And again, that, that decision was taken by Link, not, not Neil Woodford. So... The conversations that were taking place in, in the weekend prior to that fund uh, suspension taking place were, you know, how could we manage, you know, Kent County Council's um, redemption? And from from what I've been told from people that worked with Woodford at the time, is that you know that the idea of the fund suspension, you know, wasn't mentioned in conversations right up in in, in the weekend before that. So, fund suspension mm. obviously was a was always a possibility, but I think you know it it wasn't a um, a measure that, that Woodford was expecting to take place um, at the start of June when it was announced. So, yeah, Link have come to, to a lot of scrutiny over the way that, that the suspension was handled. And obviously, you know, we now look, you know, more than a year on now, um, they are now responsible for, for offloading the assets um, that, that are left in the fund. And a lot of questions have been raised about, you know, have these have these assets been sold off at fire sale prices? Could could a better price have been 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 negotiated or reached for some of these assets? And the, the whole process of paying back investors in that fund has certainly come over a lot of uh, uh, a lot of scrutiny as well. So so link yeah link, mm. link are another character another, another actor if you like in this in this whole saga that that certainly um, have received a lot of attention um, and yeah have a lot of I suppose questions to, to answer. And what about the Financial Conduct Authority? As you say, they fined Invesco um, uh, just at the end of his time there. Um, And you could say, looking at this, you know, that they should have um, spotted this coming. Maybe they should have asked more questions earlier. Um, You know, Andrew Bailey, now uh, Governor of the Bank of England, who was then the head of the FCA when hauled before the... Um, the the uh, House of Commons um, committee that that sort of deals with these things um, w- was asking, you know, do, do do you read the papers? You know, <laughs> uh, you, 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 that you quote that in the book. Did the um, Financial Conduct Authority uh, let investors down? W- was it asleep at the wheel, if you like? Well, I, th- I think the, the interesting thing is that we're still waiting to, to hear from the FCA, um, uh, you know, about the the findings from an investigation they have launched into the events leading up to the, the fund suspension back in June 2019. So, so far, they they failed to provide any 
indication of what this this investigation might include or, or when it will be published. So I think that's the first thing to say is that you know the FDA announced pretty pretty much soon after the fund was was suspended that they would look into how the events that led up to that to that decision being made and anything that could be learned from that. So so that's the first thing to say is that we're still you know, investors, journalists, everyone who follows the, this story are still waiting for that for that um, publication um, for, from the FCA. But what, what I think is interesting, and you allude to this in your question, is that you know the FCA certainly gave the impression that they, they did fail to act on some of the red flags um, perhaps sooner than they should have done. The fact that they only became aware of Woodford's decision to list some of the unquoted assets um, in the equity income fund on the Guernsey Stock Exchange after reading press reports. Um, you know, that, that didn't go down well at all with, with the Treasury Committee and, and Nicky Morgan, who was chair of, of the committee at the time. Um, and I think mm. it emerged, emerged shortly after the equity income fund was suspended that, you know, Guernsey, the Guernsey Stock Exchange had tried to contact the FCA um, a couple of months previously to discuss some of the concerns it had over valuation of some of these unquoted assets. Um, but, you know, a detailed discussion didn't take place between the two sides until the fund was actually suspended. So it was probably about six, six, seven weeks until a very detailed discussion took place. And there are various reasons for that. I think one of them being that the, the communication was picked up by a junior member of staff, for example, at the FCA. Um, so there are various, uh, various excuses and various reasons for that that were given. Um, but I, I think it's also important to, to recognise that the FCA haven't exactly covered themselves in glory in the past as well. And, and most recently, there have been two reports that have been published, um, you know, looking at failures you know, at the FCA um, in relation to how it, it sort of failed investors, if you like. I think one was how they oversaw the collapse of, um, of a Connaught fund in, in 2012. So this was a fund which you know, left over 1,200 investors um, you know, nursing losses of more than 100 million. So, you know, the report, that was published fairly, fairly recently before Christmas, you know, it delved into this saga and, and concluded the FCA could have acted in a more effective way to protect investors in that fund. Um, and another mm. report again before Christmas looked at the FCA's role in the collapse of London Capital and Finance um, back in, in 2019. Um, and again, the report uncovered serious failings about how the FCA regulated um, this, this entity which included, I think, you know, failure to act on um, some allegations that were made to, to the regulator by third parties. So you know, what I think will be interesting is to watch what comes next, both from the FCA, but also maybe from, from politicians. I know before Christmas as well, the, the all-party parliamentary group on, um, on personal banking and, and fairer finance, that they've, they've called for a debate into what measures might be needed to to get the FCA fit for purpose, if you like. So, I think there is there is certainly a, an impression uh, or a feeling that the FCA it failed to act sooner. Um, but until we get answers from their report into you know the, the, the suspension of the fund, which actually interestingly won't look into the FCA's own role in all this. So perhaps we won't get get any answers from that. Um, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen. Um, but yeah, the, the, certainly the impression that the one got from the the, um, the Treasury Committee was that yes, the, the FCA certainly were were asleep at the wheel on this this occasion. So, do you think generally, David, that that you know regulators, politicians, journalists, you know, like you and me, that 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 all those people have 
have learnt things as a result of this scandal. Do, do, do you think it has changed opinions? It, do, do you think it's, it's, it's made us question the kind of star manager culture more? Do, do you think it's made us question as well, you know, the, the huge amount of, of money that investors spend in fees and charges, not just ordinary retail investors, but as you say, local authorities like Kent County Council spending vast amounts of money uh, to these active fund managers every year. Do you think lessons are being learned as a result of it? I think le- lessons have been learned to some extent. I think one one lesson um, that we can probably take from this is that actually the star the star fund manager culture, if you like, um, that, that existed you know during Neil Woodford's heydays is certainly on the way out, if if not probably on it, on its knees already. I think it's probably fair to say that that, that kind of focus on one particular individual is is certainly being played down particularly at investment management firms when, when you speak to investment management firms now they're very reluctant to say that they they operate a star fund manager culture and they talk about the you know the process of having a team in place because mm. no, nobody wants a, nobody wants a fund manager holding all the assets uh, and suddenly announcing their departure and the money goes out the door with them. That, that's a, that's a key man risk to it to any business. Mm. I think if we go back to you know we talk, talking about the start of the conversation about you know stories I've covered in the past. If you go back to an example at, at, at Pimco, for example, you know big U.S. bond fund manager. You know one of their star star players, a guy called Bill Gross, who was one of the co-founders of the firm. He he walked out the door mm. in 2014. I think he managed in excess of 200 billion U.S. dollars, and you know Pimco were nursing significant outflows. When he walked out the door, and I think as a result of that, they changed the process to focus from far less of an individual into a more team and, and sort of collegiate um, culture. So, I think it's fair to say that the, the star fund manager culture is certainly has certainly taken a, a beating as a result of all this. And I think one of the lessons, you know, maybe it's a Hargreaves Lansdowne's credit here that they've learned is they have certainly overhauled their. Um, their own internal processes when it comes to their buy list, if you like. So, so the wealth one, mm. the wealth fifty list has now been called uh, you know, wealth, the wealth short list, and that now improve is, has improved kind of risk monitoring um, process, uh, which look more closely at liquidity. But interesting, one of the one of the things that came out when I was doing research for the book is that actually they they focus a bit more attention now on on the media profile of fund managers because perhaps mm. one of the things that caught a lot of people off guard was the fact that the coverage that, that Neil Woodford got, you know, did, did it did it exacerbate problems for him? It probably did, yeah, because you know, I, I don't think the media can be blamed for for the downfall of Neil Woodford. I mean, you know, he he was the man making the investments, um, and certainly, you know, you can't blame the media for for all his woes. But but I think you know, it's certainly true to say that. You know when these companies that he was investing in, you know, announced profit warnings. Certainly, there was heightened attention on his investment process, and I think a lot of investors did get spooked by that coverage. And I think you know they mm. certainly pulled money as a result of reading stuff in in the newspapers. And actually, going back to you talk about Kent County Council and the pension fund, you know that that is overseen by a, a committee of trustees. So these are people who don't have investment backgrounds like there are people who are you know Kent County Council councillors um and they're they're investing you know money on behalf of, of pension scheme members but 
going through some of the, the minutes of, of meetings that took place, it was quite clear that they were having concerns or raising concerns following some of the um, coverage that Woodford was getting in the media. So, you know, I, I would say that that one has to be very, very careful about how individuals are portrayed in the middle, built up, if you like, because mm-hmm. could this happen again? Yeah, until until we, we get a sort of firm answer from the FCA about any action it might take, mm. there are certainly still people in the fund management sector who are on a on a pedestal, if you like, and are kind of seen as you know a star star performers. So um, I'm not saying that that they are in any way similar to, to Neil Woodford, but I think you know we are starting to see a bit of a divergence away from that. But there are still people in the industry who are held in very high esteem. Absolutely. Just to clarify, David, I, I'm I'm not suggesting in any way that that the media was responsible for the downfall of Woodford, more for raising false expectations among, you know, hundreds of thousands of, yeah. of, of people who, you know, on the basis of of that all that positive publicity, if you like, parted with their precious, you know, life savings, mm. um, uh, and and handed it to to uh, Woodford, um, to manage. David, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm really grateful for your time. Just, just very, very briefly, tell me the name of the book, the publisher, when it's out, how people can get it, and so on. Yeah, so, so the the book uh, is called When the Fun Stops. Um, so it's out in uh, at the end of January, the 26th of January. Um, so it can be ordered from uh, from good bookshops, Amazon, uh, elsewhere. Um, Harriman House is the publisher. You can also buy it on on Harriman House, uh, the website there. Um, you know, I really hope that that it would shed some light on this this whole saga, the whole episode, for people that were invested in the fund. As I mentioned in our conversation, one of the things I was keen to do was was also cover Neil Woodford's rise as much of his downfall, because I think it's important to understand just how much of a staff manager Neil Woodford was in the UK, and I think that really kind of explains why his his collapse was such a shock. Um, but I'd like to give investors and even people that were just a passing interest in investment you know, the, the fullest picture possible. Um, you know, one of the things I, I'm really grateful for having written this book is, is speaking to people um, who worked with Neil Woodford uh, during his time at Invesco, but also um, in his new venture. Um, and also people across the industry at Hargreaves, Lansdowne and various other places who you know, gave their time up to me to speak to me um, on the condition of, you know, anonymity which is which is understandable but I think you know I've tried to include as much color as possible um, and you know I hope it gives it gives investors a, a fuller picture as possible um, in the absence of any kind of you know insight from from the FCA and, and other people that have been kind of looking into into this into this story to try and get a full answer um, but no, it's, it's been a it's been an exciting project to work on um, mm-hmm. and I hope people really really enjoy the book it's the uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a pacey read, but but one I'm, I'm really proud to have uh, to, to, to have to have written. You should be proud. Uh, I'm sure people uh, won't regret buying it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today, uh, David Ricketts, author of When the Fun Stops. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Robin. Pleasure to speak to you. You've been listening to me, Robin Powell, interviewing David Ricketts, the author of When the Fund Stops. 
If you're interested in the Neil Woodford scandal, you can find plenty of information and insight on it on the Evidence-Based Investor. You'll find us at evidenceinvestor.com. That's evidenceinvestor.com. On there, Woodford investors can also learn about claiming compensation. Tebby, by the way, is running a campaign to help those who lost money to seek justice. For all the latest developments on the campaign, simply search for the hashtag Justice for Woodford Investors. That's hashtag Justice for Woodford Investors. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes or on SoundCloud. It would be even better if you could write a review on iTunes. Thank you to Regis Media for producing and funding this podcast. Thank you to David Ricketts. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, from me and our producer, James Cresswell, goodbye.